your heart I did less so on what we have we'll This is hell. Greetings, listeners. This is board operator Dan on the mic at the top of the hour because Chuck is feeling a bit under the weather. Given his recent health scare, we want Chuck to take all the time in the world to heal up, not push things too hard while he's getting up to 100%. Chuck is planning to get back in the studio ASAP, but for today, I'll be playing an interview from the vaults. And this morning, I've selected a 2020 interview from Giorgos Kallis and Susan Paulson when they spoke to Chuck about their book, The Case for Degrowth. Before we get to that, let's just quickly remind you all about the question from hell. This week's question from hell is, what policy are you proposing to make gym class even more awful for everyone? What policy are you proposing to make gym class even more awful for everyone. You can give your answer to the question from hell by heading over to facebook.com slash thisishellradio. We'll read your answers on air, and at the end of the week, our favorite answer will get some This Is Hell swag. Chuck recently spoke with Dominic Boyer about the folly of economic growth. During that interview, he mentioned a past interview on the topic with Girgos Callas and Susan Paulson, who authored the book The Case for Degrowth. I wanted to dig a little deeper, and I'm sure I wasn't the only one. So let's go to that 2020 interview. This is hell. We need economic growth. The economy needs to constantly grow. and We need to continuously consume for our economy to work best for us. We determine who our political leaders are depending upon whether the economy grew during their term in office. But what if economic growth, which we believe we need to continue our standard of living, is actually undermining that life by destroying the planet and imposing inequality, even poverty? Here to help us rethink our prospects under constant growth, Georgos Kallis and Susan Paulson are co-authors of The Case for Degrowth, along with Giacomo Delisa and Federico De Maria. First of all, I want to thank listener Andrew M. for suggesting Gorgos and Susan as guests this morning. If you want to suggest a guest or topic of conversation for the show, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. And if, you, if we have your suggested guest or topic on the show, we will thank you personally on air as we are thanking Andrew M. right now. So thank you, Andrew M. Gorgos, welcome to This Is Hell. Good to be with you. Giorgos is Catalan Institution for Research and Advanced Studies Professor at the Institute of Environmental Science and Technology at the Autonomous University of Barcelona. And thanks for being on our show, Susan. It's great to be with you. Susan is professor of the Center for Latin American Studies at the University of Florida. Let's start with you, Giorgos. You write that you make a case for attributing current ecological disequilibrium and a range of social ills to the relentless pursuit of growth. It would be naive to claim that this pandemic is proof 
of limits to growth, a messianic reckoning for our unsustainable ways. Giorgos, how can the relentless pursuit of growth contribute to the current ecological disequilibrium and a range of social ills, yet the pandemic is not proof of limits to growth? How is the pandemic not a messianic reckoning for the constant unsustainable pursuit of growth? Yes, that's a good question. You might want to see it as a messianic reckoning, but I think we have to be a little bit careful with how we attribute things. So on the one hand, I can attribute uh, climate change, we can attribute material extraction to the constant uh, uh, increase of the economy, the constant increase of production and consumption of materials. Uh, 3% per year, which means that an economy doubles every 20-something uh, years, uh, double the amount of materials, double the amount of emissions. Uh, there is a very clear link then between economic growth and environmental damage, and there is a very clear link between economic growth and social damage in the sense that we sacrifice more and more of our public infrastructures, of our commons, uh, of uh, good conditions of link for everyone in the pursuit of a few decimals of uh, GDP growth. Now, do we attribute um, the pandemic to that? The pandemic is linked to the globalized economy and the globalized uh, machine of growth. It's linked in the sense that uh, the interaction between humans and, um, and wildlife has increased as we encroach uh, in forests and other ecosystems. And we know that this is the way through which uh, diseases are passing to humans and possibly is one of the transmission mechanisms through which uh, the virus passed from bats to humans. Uh, uh, also, the, the global economic machine is linked to the quick spread of the pandemic. It's not that we didn't have pandemics before, it's not that we didn't have pandemics with slower economies, but the speed with which this pandemic uh, spread out uh, basically f f followed the, the links of airplanes and the quick traveling of people and goods uh, uh, around the world. And uh, it's linked also, I think it is linked to the growth machine, though in one other uh, very specific way, which is the initial and continuous in some places uh, hes hesitation to do something decisively about the pandemic in the name of impacting the economy. And uh, what we see is that uh, the more people delay action, governments delay action to face the pandemic and sacrificing the economy in the short term, the more they damage the economy in the long term. And I think that's also the lesson of where we are heading with climate change. So, Susan, it sounds like what our situation is, is that globalization has played a major role, has been a major contributor in not only climate change, but also in the spreading of the pandemic. Is this all hindsight or were there concerns when globalization was just a theory, was just being implemented, that it would have a net negative impact, not just on climate change? I remember that being discussed. But were there discussions about globalization having an impact on public health or is this all hindsight as 2020? No, I, I think for the past hundred years, as industrialization has accelerated and been expanded through neocolonialization, development projects, etc., uh, there's been a lot of uh, alarm raised, a lot of scientific studies about ecological damage and also about growing social inequilibrium as people in very different power relations are exploited and drawn into the expansion of, of these growing economies, especially where I work in different parts of Latin America. So it's not new at all. Um, what's, what's different, I think, is that um, 
those concerns, those concerns with ecological damage, with health, with unequal and diminishing more risky health conditions as um, habitats are destroyed, um, are, are coming more into public debate now that many of us are drawn into a crisis in a vulnerable situation. It's, it's, it's no longer so easy to displace that to the poor and weaker parts of the world because the pandemic has spread to all corners. So, Georgos, well, you write that the way current economic systems are organized around constant circulation, any decline in market activity threatens systemic collapse, provoking generalized unemployment and impoverishment. It doesn't have mm-hmm. to be this way. What do you mean by mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be this way? I guess my bigger question is, why is the system we have, why is growth, why is it not resilient to crisis? Uh, it's not resilient because, I mean, it's it's the way the capitalist system works and people have been studying how the capitalism works ever since uh, the 19th century. And it's a system that needs a constant profit, increasing profit to invest in making more profit. It's like a bicycle that, you know, if you don't keep biking, uh, you fall down. Uh, it's designed in the system, which makes it, of course, very difficult uh, for many of us, for many of us, to imagine ways out of that, because we know that when this system doesn't doesn't move, then uh, it's uh, it's disaster time, it's recession time, it's depression time, it's uh, what is happening now. It doesn't have to be this way because there's nothing. Uh, let's say that the economic science or science in general, or also our basic understanding and our capacity as societies to organize, suggests that it has to be this way and it can't be another way. So there are many good proposals out there. There are many good uh, ideas. There are people already organizing and living their lives differently uh, so that we could uh, manage without growth as uh, my friend, ecological economist Peter Victor put it in his book. So there are ways that we could manage without growth, but they are not easy, let's say, politically or socially. They need uh, fundamental transformations of uh, how the current system and the current society is organized. Susan, you also write that some of you might protest. Isn't the coronavirus crisis revealing the misery of degrowth? What is happening during the pandemic is not degrowth. The goal of degrowth is to purposely slow things down in order to minimize harm to humans and earth systems. And I know that, and you repeat this over and over in your book, how often people think that they must be harmed due to degrowth. So how is today's degrowth, Susan, different from the degrowth that you and Georgos and your co-authors propose? How would the degrowth you propose look different from today's degrowth, a degrowth that people are suffering from? Right, great. First, I, I want to add one more thing to Georgos' excellent answer about why uh, we don't have to do things this way. My colleagues in anthropology have been studying how homo sapiens live together in communities We've been modern humans walking, talking uh, for 200,000 years. And during almost all that time in every almost every context, we've managed our resources in commons and our human resources in commons. And it's only been in the past few hundred years with the rise of colonial capitalism that this kind of constantly growing and constantly expanding material production system ha- has happened. And so that's another reason why it doesn't have to be that way is simple historical fact and archaeological fact, as well as cross-cultural facts. Humans live in many other ways. It's hard to imagine that, but all right. 
Now to get to your great question about um, why isn't right now what's happening degrowth? I think one of the the first confusions that many people I talk to have when they hear about degrowth is they think the point of degrowth is depressing or recessing profits and GDP. We're pretty indifferent to that. What we really want is to stop the growing use of materials and energy, the thermodynamic entropy that's growing all the time, right? It turns out that those, as Yorgos described, those are very closely tied in history, right? With every dollar of GDP growth, more environmental impact happens. So what we really want is less environmental impact and less social sacrifice. And it just happens that those are tied to economic growth. So right now what happens is we see these sort of paralyzed economic activities and some authors have have jumped to the headline saying, oh look, degrowth is happening, it's hell for everybody. And we're like, no, degrowth are, are careful, thoughtful movements trying to slow down the damage to our economy and society so that we can live in more resilient ways, which is sort of the opposite of pushing as hard as we can on this this speeding train towards disaster, and then when it crashes, saying, "Oh, we've now we've got degrowth, right?" So, that's that's kind of a debate we've been having the last seven or eight months amongst different interpretations of of, of how we want to think about that idea and that movement towards degrowth. And Giorgos, just to follow up again, uh, so um, is you know, people are saying that, well, economic growth, the argument has always been that this is just the natural state of being. Of course, the economy always wants to grow. As Susan was just pointing out, that is not the case. This is a new system of economic growth that human experiences never had before in all of our history. So is... <laughs> Is it any more fair to say, Gorgos, or, or is this a complete distraction from the topic? Is it any more fair to say that degrowth is what is natural, not economic growth? Or is that whole concept of natural within economics a distraction from the conversation? Yeah, I think the latter. I think it's a distraction. Whenever, whenever uh, I remember David Harvey saying, whenever you hear someone claiming something is natural, like, look out for their ideology and what they want to dress as natural. Uh, so when someone says that economic growth is natural, I think it's pure ideology at play. Susan said that, that economic growth was not the common uh, state of things up until recently. But not only that, the very idea of growth and the idea that we have to grow the economy 3% every year is like an idea that starts with the Great Depression in the 1930s and 40s. People before were not talking about constant growth. Even Keynes was not talking about growth. He was talking about having the sufficient employment and increasing output to a certain level, but he wasn't talking about like, you know, increasing output 3% every year at the infinitum to infinity, which is like, a, which is like a very strange idea that emerges in the 50s and emerges in the context of the Cold War. So there, the Soviets start claiming that they will grow their economy 100% within 10 years. They throw like a spacecraft, you know, to space. The Americans get uh, uh, scared. They say we're going to grow like 150%. There is, there is competition and there is a whole like uh, social model and the whole social contract of uh, avoiding uh, tough redistributive conflicts by expanding the pie a little bit more and more. And this lasts basically for 20 years, lasts until the crisis of the 70s. 
Ever since then, I mean, uh, growth is not is not improving the the well-being of the majority of people. Let's say the 80s. Uh, wages have stagnated, uh, and I'm talking now about the U.S., but in other parts of the world, they haven't uh, increased. Uh, we have increasing uh, inequalities. We have uh, increasing frustrations, a sense of social stagnation. So the economy keeps growing nominally. The GDP. Uh, but without uh, without an effect. And actually, many people are arguing right now, and this is not the growth scholars, this is uh, economists who are looking at the economy without the ideological blinds of uh, trying to find the natural growth there. They are saying that big economies, uh, at some point, you know, it gets harder and harder to grow. So there is a point where they enter stagnation. And this seems to be what is happening now to an extent um, in the global north and the west. So it gets harder and harder to grow, and then we have more and more sacrifices in order to maintain a few points more of uh, GDP growth. So I would say the opposite is not natural. It's not natural, and precisely because it's not the natural way of doing things, it is being pushed now to the extent of destruction of our natural habitats and of ourselves, in a sense. We are speaking with Georgos Kalas and Susan Paulson, co-authors of The Case for Degrowth, along with Giacomo Dalisa and Federico Damaria. Susan, you write that even if Elon Musk flew the wealthiest 1% off to Mars, a drive for growth would persist in many, although not all, places and persons, even some of those most exploited and degraded by growth economies. The capacity to change course is constrained by particular modes of knowing and being that have become intertwined with expanding colonial capitalist and fossil fuel economies. What are the modes of knowing and being that have become intertwined with expanding colonial capitalist and fossil fuel economies that we may not recognize having been been affected by colonialism, capitalism, and fossil fuels? Do we realize the extent to which our understanding of the world has been guided by those factors? And must we make that recognition in a path toward plan degrowth to realize the impact that capitalism, colonialism, and fossil fuels have had on our social relations? Wow, I love that question. That's what we, we're trying to think about is we're finding ways, new ways to be human every day. Um, it's really hard to change because it's not just a rational decision. Many people involved in degrowth have been talking about decolonization of the mind the visions we have, the desires we feel, the, the, self, the self-esteem, even our sexual desires that feel so intimate in our bodies and our minds are all tied up with the kind of worldview that has been sold to us and institutionalized into us depending on our class position and, and our racial national position in this world. And so it's pretty hard to to pull those things out of us. Um, nevertheless, I think in moments of great conflict and change, like we're living through now, is is a wonderful time for that kind of change because it's one of the few moments where things really sort of come into, into tension and new light can shine in. And I'll just mention two of the sort of ways of thinking that are hard to overcome. One we call binary hierarchies, right? It's a way of thinking that humans dominate nature, we're better than other nature, that man over women, white people over non-white people, Western science over other ways of knowing, which is sort of dividing 
the world into two categories and always thinking that one should sort of decide and ex decide how to do things and, and use the other one as resources to get them done. And one other piece I just want to mention that I'm particularly interested in is this belief that that humans are naturally greedy and selfish and individualistic and competitive. And it's, it's so common in our stories, our, our, our movies, our school books. Um, they talk about the selfish gene, homo economicus, this, you know, kind of innately selfish creature. And again, anthropologists are saying that's ridiculous. If Homo sapiens were really selfish individuals, we wouldn't have survived a few decades, right? That's not, we're not fast and strong and, and smooth enough to survive as, as loners, right? It's really communication and collaboration that's allowed us to create worlds and live in them. And yet somehow we've been convinced in the modern world that we are sort of innately selfish and competitive and, and just want more and more. And so I think those things, th those bodily and mental challenges, they're, they're in some ways harder to change than just changing policy or an economic program. And on the other hand, they're more accessible in the fact that we can all start changing them this minute, this, this day in our relationships and in our attitudes and interactions with the world around us. Susan, let me just follow up with you on that. So does degrowth mean, because you know, you've heard this a million times. So does degrowth mean an end of individual rights? Does it mean an end of individualism? And if we all know, as you point out, and you see this even in right-wing circles, we all know that working together works. What is the attraction to this kind of hyper-individualism? Well, <laughs> um, first of all, I think that question, de does degrowth mean an end to individual rights? One of the things that we've all been struggling with within degrowth conversations and communities is to stay away from one programmatic model to say degrowth is X, we should fight for Y. And rather think about sort of changing the the way the playing field is is set out to create opportunities for more worlds to emerge that we may not even know. Right. So it's not so much instructive, but those worlds, I'm conv I don't want to attack individual rights and get rid of them. What I would like to do is create a scene where the worlds I know from living many years amongst Andean communities and Amazonian communities, that those worlds also have a way to thrive. And in those worlds, people aren't thinking in the same way we are about individual ownership and property and success. By nature, they're managing their watersheds, their hunting forests, their rivers, communally, and it wouldn't make sense to own it. Like, this is my strand of the river. I can only fish here. I mean, everyone everyone looks after it together, right? Um, so that's what I say. Rather than attacking individual rights or selfishness, let's create a world where a whole, a whole rainbow of collaborative forms can thrive better and coexist with the contemporary way of thinking that 
that sort of has come to dominate Western societies now. Georgos, why doesn't the monetization, the commodification of everything lead to the incentivization and motivation that markets promise? Why doesn't a system of monetizing and commodifying everything, why isn't that effective and efficient <laughs> like people have been telling us it will be? It's not because obviously the value of some things is not, uh, in, in many cases, it's uh, antithetical to, it's the opposite of uh, getting them for money. No? So there are many things that we can start with love, uh, we can think of, uh, of pride, we can think of friendship. I mean, you wouldn't like to pay to have friends, right? Uh, or maybe some people would like, I don't know. <laughs> Nowadays, no? On social media, you'll find everything. Uh, but in principle, if you start paying for friendship, then something uh, irreversibly is lost in friendship. And in, in many relations that uh, we have as humans and social relations, com commodifying them is not that it just changes the means uh, of exchange of or rewarding these relationship. It changes the very nature of the relationship. And uh, the very nature of it goes against uh, the logic of profit, goes against the, lo the logic of exchange for profit. So a lot, uh, many social relations have a logic, for example, that in the growth literature we like a lot to talk about, but it has been with many human societies. This is the logic of gift, exchanging gifts. Uh, in our society, there is like some remains of that. Now we exchange gifts in Christmas uh, uh, or in birthday. But uh, many societies, were, their, their whole logic and their whole uh, economies were based around the logic of gift exchange. It doesn't mean that they were benevolent, only the gift exchanges, although they were angels. No, no, they had wars also. Maybe they were exchanging too many gifts and, uh, <laughs> and they were getting in trouble. But what I mean is... I want to emphasize the point that Susan made, that there are many different worlds and many different logics. And uh, uh, reducing everything down to the bottom line of uh, money uh, is not only destructive for the planet, but it's also destructive of uh, some intangible qualities that uh, give meaning, I think, to human life. Let me follow up on that, Georgos, because... Uh Yesterday, we or last week, we celebrated Election Day by talking to Ruth Kinna, who wrote the book, The Government of No One, The Theory and Practice of Anarchism, because we thought that would be a great way to celebrate Election Day here in the U.S. <laughs> the following day, while votes were still being counted, we spoke with Adas Tier, uh, author of The People's Guide to Capitalism and Introduction to Marxist Economics, because we were still celebrating the American election. So they both expressed how much they enjoyed the different ideas, healthy debates, many possibilities of both anarchism and Marxism. Giorgos. So mm -hmm. why do ideas like anarchism, like Marxism, like degrowth promise so much but are so uncertain? How can their promise be more certain? I think that's a, that's a matter of, uh, of, of political organization and, and, and social forces. And this, I think, uh, it's not something that can be responded in the abstract and uh, intellectually. It's something that it's made on the ground by people uh, organizing, fighting in different arenas, including elections, I think, but uh, definitely not only elections and not mostly elections. Um, this is what we try to illustrate in the last chapter of our book, which is a... Uh, it's, it's a book published in a series that they have to be very short and provocative books, so we had very few pages to make our case, but what would be the strategies of uh, organizing for the growth? And we are open again to different strategies, but we emphasize that there has to be an articulation between our personal chains, our coming together in common to produce, consume, and live differently, 
and then organizing politically so that the different ways that we do things uh, can be universalized and be available to everyone. Now, this still sounds abstract, but I think it is something that is uh, made in the ground. I mean, I'm, I'm having in mind here a very strong uh, cooperativist movement we have in Barcelona and Catalonia, like people uh, running uh, electric cars as a cooperative, uh, building houses as cooperatives. Then the same people organized, occupied the squares, and then uh, we had the municipal, uh, uh, our, our, our mayor right now was uh, born out of this movement and represents this movement, and it's called uh, Barcelona in Comum, which means the commons of Barcelona. Um, so this is where I see the hope. But yes, of course, we, we're, fi we're fighting against something that it's uh, extremely strong, extremely bigger and much more intricate and complicated and interwoven in, in ways that it's not easy to, to change it from one day to the other. Susan, you write that the intersection of contemporary innovation with ancestral wisdom is evidenced, for example, in Bhutan's commitment to building gross national happiness, not directed toward GDP growth, but instead toward the attainment of meaning and fulfillment in harmony with Buddhist spiritual values. In parallel processes, millennial Christian traditions of simple communal life are being revitalized in contexts ranging from neo-monastic communities of young evangelicals who eschew consumerism in favor of a collective life of spiritual growth, to Latin America visionaries exploring Pope Francis' call for a radical transition toward integral ecology. What explains this gets back to another guest that we had on the show recently. What explains degrowth's connection with religion and spirituality? Because yesterday's guest, activist and political theorist Muhammad Abdu, he brought up spirituality and religion as they relate to decolonization. So what explains degrowth's connection with religion and spirituality? And is there a connection between degrowth and decolonization? Absolutely. I think most spiritual traditions are deeply about our values and and our paths our paths to this world right the way in which humans relate to each other and to the world around them um, imbuing that with some type of maybe moral or traditional meaning and I th I think um, these cases, I'm really glad that you brought together those cases. Bhutan is a really outstanding case because it's this very explicit national effort to make those very long-standing traditions of, of peacefulness, of respect, of equilibrium come to the forefront um, in decisions about managing the nation's historical development. Um, in the U.S., it's harder, and I, I would say that in, I don't want to overstate this, but in some ways, the worship of individual success, uh, economic success, professional success, the sense of sort of responsibility and achievement built in them has become a moral and spiritual uh, goal in itself for many Western Communities built in, built into religion, as we've seen already in sort of this, you know, the spirit of capitalism and the Protestant ethic, um, and so they sort of coexist. And and what I've seen in Latin America is is that what we might call spiritualism, it's not necessarily related to going to church, but 
people's practices, let's say in managing a watershed and cleaning the irrigation canals communally and sharing the water are deeply embedded in rituals, um, rituals that are expressed in, in what we might call cosmological uh, language. Um, and so this idea of how we live together, how we live in an environment is takes many spiritual forms. Um, and again, I go back to the idea that letting these different forms coexist is great. I don't want to impose one new one, just um, acknowledge that those, right, that different values and moral traditions can be meaningful ways to shape lives. Georgos, you write that the time is ripe for us to refocus on what really matters, not gross domestic product, but the health and well-being of our people and our planet in a word degrowth. How does GDP not reflect the health and well-being of the planet and its people? How good, how good are economic metrics at determining the health and well-being of the people and the planet? Yeah, I mean, I don't have to say much, but compare like what's going on in the US and Europe right now with the health of the people to what's going on in Vietnam. Uh, they have zero dead, dead people from the coronavirus the last, I don't know how many months. Uh, it's obvious that the GDP didn't protect us from what happened. It's also obvious, I think, that the, the obsession with GDP was, uh, and the economy was to an extent uh, part of our problem. I mean, the, the hesitation to, to lock down and close the borders quickly at the beginning when it was clear that the pandemic was coming. Even, I mean, the hesitation right now, I'm reading like 15 million minks. I didn't even know that Denmark has 15, 15 million farmed minks, you know, the Denmark, Denmark, the social democratic civilized so-called paradise, you know. They have 15 million minks that they apparently killed to make uh, furs. And right now they got the new strain of coronavirus that they, they are worried that it might escape and it might not be uh, addressed by the vaccine. And even now, you know, they are like, we cannot stop them, uh, the mink uh, economy. Many people depend on that. Jobs depend on this. Uh, other countries are not closing the borders to Denmark, you know, because like, would we close borders again? So we see the same pattern playing over and over again. Um, this doesn't mean that the response is just to lock down and stop uh, doing things or stop living our lives, but it means that we need uh, more reasonableness, putting uh, health and well-being first. And putting health and well-being first, uh, we have healthy humans and happy humans that they also produce uh, things that they enjoy and that they make sense to them. So then we have also a healthy economy. Right now, what we had is... In, in, in the fear of damaging in the short term uh, some economic activities, uh, we are damaging the economy and the health of the people in the long run much more than uh, was necessary and much more than it has been damaged in other countries that they have much less income than uh, our part of the world. Uh, so in that sense, uh, the obsession with GDP has become a huge obstacle. It has become a huge obstacle because the economists and uh, the governments are completely uh, lack of ideas of how do you manage an economy that has to go in lockdown for two or three months, you know? How do you provide for the people? How do you secure the basic necessities? How do you move resources to produce masks uh, and oxygen and uh, trace, trace and track tests? 
that we might need for a year? How do we put all the work of the people that now are sitting in their places because they can't work in restaurants and bars? How do we direct it somewhere else? But these questions, no one has asked them. No economist has seriously asked them. No government uh, in uh, the so-called uh, developed world knows what to do. And at the end, you have a collapse. So that's how the system works. Like pursuing GDP at the expense of human health and well-being, uh, growth, 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 until there is not and it collapses, you know. So this is what we are trying to put on the table of, of the growth. Let's try to escape from this, uh, from this catastrophic uh, trap. Uh, Susan, uh, you also write that existing resources can be shared and invested differently to secure good living with less money, less exploitation, and less environmental degradation. Is degrowth less expensive and does it provide more services for the public than growth does? How can more and better services be less expensive? <laughs> Great question. Uh, first of all, Yorgos did a nice uh, job of pointing out how the the differences between GDP and well-being have become so so obvious during the pandemic. I'd like to add that also for decades now, it's been very clear to scholars and statisticians that there's a very weak correlation between GDP growth and the things that most societies say we desire. Let's say higher rates of longevity, literacy, equality, security, political participation, mental health, happiness, or maybe lower rates of incarceration, obesity, homicide, suicide, infant mortality. I, I live in the U.S. We have one of the highest GDPs um, in absolute terms and per capita, and yet we're actually quite low. We're, we're often behind dozens of other countries in all of those other indicators that I mentioned here. And so I think that's just empirical correlations are strong argument. We continue to think that GDP is the only means to getting everything good. But when we look across countries, high GDP countries don't have better average levels of those than medium GDP countries or even low ones in many cases. And also as countries grow, they don't definitely, they don't necessarily improve in those terms. All right. So how can we live good costing less? How can we get those things we're looking for? Longevity, literacy, you know, less homicide and suicide without just getting more and more cash. The obvious way is to work directly towards them instead of saying, we need to get more cash and so that we can have better mental health. We, we say, oh, well, wait a minute, can't we just work directly towards mental health instead of assuming that higher incomes is gonna make everyone happier and healthier? Um, so, all right, back to how can we get good living with, with less cash? I think we agree, everyone in degrowth movements agree that we need to reduce the overall amount of matter and energy that's transformed every day by human economies. But that doesn't mean that we have to reduce everything. We can reduce you know, whatever, casinos and tour boats or whatever, but maybe we can actually increase investment in caring and sharing resources and, and, and features that matter like health, education, nourishment, um, and that we're certainly more than wealthy enough um, to do that. So that's some of the, some of the paths forward. 
We have been speaking with Georgos Kallis and Susan Paulson, co-authors of The Case for Degrowth, along with Giacomo Delisa and Federico DeMaria. We want to thank listener Andrew M. for suggesting Georgos and Susan as guests this week. I've got one last question for each one of you. And as we do with every one of our guests, I promise that our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, <laughs> or our audience is going to hate your response. And Georgos, let's go with you first. Can we address climate change? Can we address the pandemic? Can we address all of the challenges and social ills we face today without challenging or addressing globalization? Because every conversation I've seen about the pandemic, I, and again, these, this is anecdotal, and this is all from mainstream media, huge outlets. You don't hear discussions about you know, maybe globalization caused the pandemic. Maybe globalization caused climate change. Can we address either one of those, Georgos, without addressing globalization? In, uh, in the growth, we talk about relocalization, which doesn't mean like uh, going back to each one of us living in our towns and villages and not traveling, but it means like the, the way Susan put it, it doesn't mean like getting away with something completely and going to the other extreme, but it means like letting letting alternatives emerge. So we do we do emphasize a lot the importance of um, reinvesting in local economies, uh, reinvesting in local commons, uh, reinvesting in uh, in uh, relations of proximity, food networks uh, of proximity. Uh, uh, traveling and vacations of proximity. So to go to your answer, I think, uh, to, to your question, I think the answer is clear. Globalization is part of the problem and uh, the acceleration that comes uh, with globalization, uh, the acceleration of traveling, the acceleration of our, of our day life, the acceleration of extracting things out of the earth, the acceleration of sending things to the air. All these phenomena are interlinked. And I think um, a first important step of providing a real alternative to globalization is working again to reconstitute uh, local human scale economies. All right, Susan, our question from hell for you is, does the American dream cause climate change and pandemics? And if so, how can we address uh, an American dream that causes climate change and pandemics? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's a hellish question, Chuck. Um, Thank you. What is the American dream? I mean, that's the question. One of my heroes, Robert Reich, has a great argument about inequality for all, where he says the United right, right now the United States has growing inequality, uh, exploitation, and problems, but we don't need to say, you know, the American dream is trash, let's follow North Vietnam or something. He looks back to the mid 20th century where there was actually policies in place that allowed our country to have, to really be leaders in the world in terms of moving towards um, income and wealth, equity, intergenerational mobility, education for all. We got to be one of the best educated workforces in the, in the world. Um, so there was this process going up into, as Yorgos mentioned, about the sort of the 70s that went into this crisis, and then the 80s, greater inequalities began to emerge, right? 
And so in some ways, if you think about the American dream as chances for equity, participation, opportunity, certainly we can do that. If you think about the American dream as something that's emerged more explicitly in recent decades, of massive accumulation of wealth, of just untold uh, riches, and also grotesque increase in consumption just by everybody, right? More and more cars, more and more clothes, you know, changed out every month and and things like that. Um, If that's the American dream, it's tough to figure out how to keep it going on a finite planet. But if the American dream is something we think of maybe a longer term thing of participation in equity. Um, I think what we can do is invest in natural and human resources as the wealth of our, of our nation. And we can certainly develop them in a way that, that makes equitable and sustainable well-being for many more of us. That's a really good question. What does the American dream mean anymore? Because one set of politicians may use that phrase, the American dream to mean one thing, and another set of politicians may mean it in another way, may define the American dream in another way. That's a really interesting point of view. Susan and uh, Georgos, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show this week. And again, thanks to listener Andrew M. for suggesting both of you to be be a guest this week. Georgos Callas and Susan Paulson are co-authors, along with Giacomo Delisa and Federico DiMaria of the book, The Case for Degrowth, you must check out this book. It is really interesting. It's short. It's very thick, even though it is very thin. It has a lot of information, and it's a great way to get you introduced to the idea of degrowth. And for those of you who do know already about degrowth, it is a great expansion on your knowledge. So thank you both very much, Susan Giorgos. I cannot thank you enough for being on the show. Thank you. I'm grateful for you inviting us to this conversation. All right. Take care. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. This is board operator Dan here on June 7th, 2022. And that was Chuck speaking to Giorgos Kallas and Susan Paulson about their book, The Case for Degrowth. That was an excellent interview. Facing both the existential threat of climate change as well as the moral nightmares and general unpleasantness of daily life under late capitalism, degrowth sounds like a sane course of action. Thank you for listening along with me. So let's check out some of your answers from this week's Question from Hell. Remember, this week's Question from Hell is what policy are you proposing to make gym class even more awful for everyone? And there has been a healthy response. Kelly H. says daily pinworm check. During the interview, I googled pinworms, and they are so nasty. Scott P. says a two students enter, one student leaves policy to the weekly joust on top of the soccer goals posts. It's funny. Yekaterina O says make kids who get picked last for teams always make popular kids captains and let them decide do extra push-ups and pull-ups while everyone else watches it'll surely help their popularity and self-esteem nikki suggests naked jumping jacks and 100 one-handed pull-ups our own jeffrey d says 
the class must form a human centipede. Yikes. Yekaterina O says, once it, oh, I guess she had two ideas. This is her other idea. When I was in seventh grade, gym at my school was during the first two periods, two to three times a week. All winter long, we had to spend the first two hours cross-country skiing. Then, sweaty, smelly, and covered in snow, we proceeded to study math. Let's do that. All right. There's a few more, but I'll leave the rest of the answers for tomorrow. Remember, you can leave your response to the question from hell at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. And at the end of tomorrow's stream, we'll award the very best response with some This Is Hell merchandise. So this has been Board Operator Dan, covering for Chuck, who's feeling a bit under the weather. Some late-breaking news at this hour on that front. I've just heard Chuck slept for a cool 15 hours and is feeling a lot better. He's planning on being in tomorrow and Thursday for the Patreon show. That's great news. All right, hope you enjoyed the show as much as I did. I'll be in here next week. Until then... My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>